Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. On December 1st, 1946, Ernie Whitman and three friends were camping at Bickford Hollow, just below Glastonbury Mountain in Vermont. It was a cold day. There was snow on the ground, and as the sun started to set, temperatures were nearing freezing. Around 4 p.m., the four campers were surprised to see a young woman walking towards them. They assumed she was a student at the nearby Bennington College. But what was particularly strange was that she wasn't dressed for the weather. She only had on jeans, sneakers, and a light red jacket. She said her name was Paula, and she needed directions to the Long Trail, a 273-mile-long hiking trail that ran the entire length of Vermont. Whitman took one look at her clothes and told her to reconsider. But Paula paid him no mind. She asked if the trail went over the mountain. Whitman was honest. Not only did it go over Glastonbury Mountain, but if you took it long enough, you'd end up in Canada. Paula thanked the group and headed in the direction they had pointed her, to the long trail. As she walked away from their camp, the snow crunched under her feet. And then, she was gone. She was never seen or heard from again. Paula Weldon wasn't the first, nor would she be the last, to disappear in what has since been called the Bennington Triangle. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This is our first episode on the Bennington Triangle, a 35-square-mile area in southern Vermont where multiple inexplicable disappearances occurred between the late 1880s up to the 1950s. This week, we'll discuss the five most prominent missing person cases and how each person disappeared into the Bennington Triangle. Next week, we'll discuss some theories about what makes the Triangle so dangerous. Some believe it might have been home to a local serial killer, while others believe that Glastonbury Mountain is home to less human monsters. The name Bennington Triangle was first coined by local historian and storyteller Joseph Citro after studying the area's haunting past. It refers to a 35-square-mile area that spans the Vermont towns of Shaftesbury, Bennington, and Somerset. In its center is Glastonbury Mountain, a large 3,700-foot peak in the middle of Green Mountain National Forest. It's one of the tallest landmarks around, and for centuries it has cast a literal and figurative shadow over southern Vermont. According to Citro in his book, Passing Strange, True Tales of New England Hauntings and Horrors, since pre-colonial times, there have been strange tales of mysterious lights, untraceable sounds, and unidentifiable odors. Local legends passed down over the years say that Native American tribes in the region believed the mountain was cursed. They were so afraid of it that they refused to live on the slope. They would only venture up to bury their dead. What it was that scared them, we can't say for certain. Some folklore suggests it was a massive, man-eating slab of granite. If someone stepped on the rock, its composition would turn to clay. They would slowly sink, their screams echoing through the forest, until they were consumed entirely. Stranger still, the rock was said to move during the night, which meant every step on the mountain might be your last. Other legends tell of a wild, ape-like man. It would stalk its prey for hours before bursting out of the woods to capture them, never to be seen again. After Vermont's colonization, the area became a logger's town, rich and prosperous. The men who worked in the forest claimed to have seen such an ape man, but it was never caught. But by the 1930s, the logging industry dried up. Some claim it was due to the mountain itself, that there was a curse or a spell on its woods protecting the mountain from those that threatened its forests. The stories of Glastonbury Mountain and its mystery remained localized for centuries. They captured the attention of only those who lived in the mountain's shadow. They were only told fireside while camping or in bars over strong drinks. But after a string of people disappeared in the area between 1945 and 1950, the legends caught the attention of the entire nation. On November 12, 1945, 74-year-old Mitty Rivers and his son-in-law, Joe Lausanne Jr., were going hunting. Joe didn't normally take stock of what his father-in-law wore or carried, but soon enough, those details would become important. Mitty had on a red and black plaid coat with a matching hat. In his pockets were a smoking pipe, matches, 15 shotgun shells, and a blue handkerchief. 
The pair were leading a small group of men toward an area known as Bickford Hollow. It was only a few miles south of Glastonbury and a good place for hunting deer. Mitty Rivers was known around town as someone who knew the woods well. He was also known to push his luck. He'd often wander off into the remote parts of the forest in search of the biggest trophy. But on that Monday, Joe warned Mitty not to travel to the other side of Bickford Hollow. He may have been spry for a 74-year-old, but it was unfamiliar terrain for both of them. Joe didn't want his father-in-law to get lost, or worse, killed. But Mitty was never one to play by anyone else's rules. When the group arrived at the fork in the trail, Mitty said he was going to split from the group and go down the other path. He promised that he would not be gone long. He'd meet everyone back at the camp for lunch. Knowing that arguing would get him nowhere, Joe let him go. But lunch came and went, and Mitty never returned. Joe didn't think much of it at first. Mitty knew what he was doing in the woods. He probably got caught up tracking some game. But as 3 p.m. arrived, the sun began to go down. The shadows grew longer. Joe got concerned. It was no longer just tardiness. Mitty could have fallen or gotten hurt. Joe led the group back to the fork where they had last seen the old man. When they arrived, they fired a couple of shots into the air, hoping that the sound would attract Mitty's attention. If he was lost, it would help him orient himself. They waited and waited, but nothing. The group of hunters searched until nightfall, and the whole forest was still quiet. Everyone was sure Mitty could survive one night in the woods. He knew how to find shelter and forage for food. And continuing to search might mean they'd all be lost come morning. So they returned to camp. The search resumed as soon as the sun came up. Word spread to other camps that Mitty Rivers was missing. More and more people started to look for any signs of life. But by the end of the second day, there was still no sign of Mitty anywhere. The news spread to local towns. By the third morning, there were 30 men scouring the woods, but they couldn't find anything. No footprints, no clothing, no signs of life anywhere. It was as if he vanished. On the fourth day, local fire chief Wallace Madison put out a plea for 500 volunteers. He offered to pay each man $4 for their time, roughly $60 today. Chief Madison wanted to blanket the entire area surrounding Bickford Hollow, but despite the financial incentive, only 40 men showed up. Any hope of finding Mitty alive started to fade. The forest was too large. They had searched anywhere and everywhere that Mitty could have made it by foot. And they continued to search for two weeks. Only then did authorities admit defeat. They likely wouldn't be finding Joe's 74-year-old father-in-law. They certainly wouldn't be finding him alive. Out of desperation, people reached out to local psychic Clara Jepson. According to the Bennington Banner, on November 19th, Jepson had the following prediction. I see that Mr. Rivers is dead. They will find him somewhere near the river this afternoon, sometime before dark. It was a reasonable guess, 
but nobody ever found Mitty Rivers. However, six months later, in May 1946, someone was strolling through the woods near the foot of Bickford Hollow and came across a blue handkerchief. At the time, people speculated that maybe Mitty had been shot. It wouldn't be the first time a hunting accident resulted in death. But that didn't explain the absence of a body. And if someone did try to cover up the accident, surely they would have found a sign, marks on the ground of a body being dragged or blood splatter on a tree. As the months passed through 1946, Mitty Rivers' disappearance was slowly forgotten until one year later, the town of Bennington made headlines again when a college student vanished just a few short miles from where Mitty was last seen. In December of 1946, 18-year-old Paula Jean Weldon was a sophomore at Bennington College studying art, but she was considering changing her major to botany. The only thing stopping her was what her family might think. Paula's college roommate, Elizabeth, was also her best friend, Elizabeth was also the one who introduced Paula to the beauty of hiking and the outdoors. They worked together in the campus cafeteria. But Elizabeth noticed something had been going on with Paula. She had been acting strange. Paula decided not to go home for Thanksgiving break, despite her mother sending money for travel expenses. Her only explanation was something came up. And when Elizabeth returned from her Thanksgiving break, she noticed that Paula seemed restless. On Sunday, December 1st, there was a light snowfall in Bennington. After Elizabeth and Paula finished their morning shifts in the dining hall, Elizabeth suggested they go for a walk to get some fresh air. But Paula didn't show any interest, so the pair split up. Paula went ahead to their dorm room while Elizabeth stayed behind to finish some chores. And when Paula arrived in the room, she changed clothes and left. She didn't tell anyone where she was going. When Elizabeth returned and found Paula gone, she wasn't concerned. She assumed Paula had gone to the science building to study for her botany exam and might be out late. Elizabeth went to sleep. When she woke up, Paula was still gone. Nothing on Paula's side of the room had been touched. She had never come home. Now this was concerning. Elizabeth got dressed and rushed to the dining hall. Maybe Paula had pulled an all-nighter and was working her morning shift. But Paula never showed up for work either. Around 10 a.m., roughly 20 hours since she'd last seen Paula, Elizabeth went to college authorities and reported her missing. After a thorough search of campus buildings, Administrators contacted law enforcement around 1 p.m. When the official investigation into Paula Weldon's disappearance began, there was still hope that she would be found. Up next, the search for Paula Weldon continues. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now back to our story. 
The area around Glastonbury Mountain has been called the Bennington Triangle, a place of inexplicable mystery. By the 20th century, the mountain had been a source of legends for hundreds of years. Between November 1945 and December 1946, two residents of Bennington, Vermont, separately vanished in its woods. 74-year-old Mitty Rivers and 18-year-old college student Paula Jean Weldon. Paula's father, William, was first notified that his daughter was missing on the morning of Monday, December 2nd. After Paula's roommate, Elizabeth, hadn't seen or heard from her for a day, campus authorities wondered if she might have gone home to visit her parents. That wasn't the case. Paula's parents hadn't even seen her for Thanksgiving. Alarmed, William Weldon took the next train to Bennington. When he arrived, the police search for Paula was seven hours underway. It had been over 24 hours since she was last seen, and the odds of her survival were fading with each passing minute. A missing persons bulletin was sent to Bennington area police and newspapers. It contained pictures of Paula along with physical descriptions. She was pretty with blonde hair and blue eyes. And then they waited. Luckily, as the search approached the 48-hour mark, a few people came forward. They had seen the bulletin and recognized Paula. A few had even seen her the night she disappeared. Lewis Knapp said that on the afternoon of December 1st, the day Paula disappeared, he saw her on the side of the road. She was hitchhiking and on her way to the long trail. Knapp offered to take her as far as the driveway to his house, which wasn't far from the trailhead. Not long afterwards, around 4 p.m., she was seen by Ernie Whitman and his three friends. They were at a campsite at Bickford Hollow. They had given Paula directions to the long trail. Only two people claimed to have seen Paula after she left, Whitman and his friends, a couple that was also hiking. Their names were not released to the public, but they were the last to see her alive. They remembered seeing Paula and her red jacket not far ahead of them. She was easy to spot against the snowfall. But when they rounded the bend, she was gone. It was as if the woods swallowed her. There was no Paula. They had even convinced themselves that maybe they had imagined the girl in the red jacket. In the days following Paula Weldon's disappearance, the weather grew colder. Snowfall covered any footprints that might have been made, and given the description of what Paula was wearing, authorities knew she wouldn't last long. So Bennington College suspended classes. They asked their students to help in the search. In total, 500 volunteers searched just west of Glastonbury Mountain, but not a single clue was found. On December 6, 1946, Five days after Paula's disappearance, Paula's father contacted the FBI in Albany, New York. He had a theory of his own. His daughter had been kidnapped. But the idea was immediately dismissed by the state's attorney. They told him quite plainly. They said, there isn't the slightest evidence of kidnapping or foul play. In fact, there isn't any evidence of her movements after 4 p.m. Sunday. Heartbroken, frustrated, and without anyone else to turn to, William Weldon reached out to Clara Jepson. Jepson was the same clairvoyant used during Mitty Rivers' case. 
William hoped that her visions might be accurate this time around. William needed that to be the case, because when he spoke to Jepson, she said that Paula was still alive. Not only that, but she claimed that Paula was going to be found, more specifically, in an old shack. But the hope that the oracle gave William Weldon faded with each passing day. Every so often there would be reported sightings of Paula in Vermont and the surrounding states, but each lead went cold. Then, on December 9th, eight days after Paula's disappearance, Vermont State Detective Almo Franzoni told the press that everything humanly possible had been done to solve this case. He announced that he would be dropping the case if Paula wasn't found in 24 hours. And she wasn't. But it would be another two weeks before William Weldon could admit that there was nothing more anyone could do. Finally, he went to her dorm room, carefully packed her things in boxes, loaded them in his car, and drove home. But he didn't care what anyone said. He could never shake the feeling that his daughter had been kidnapped. Time doesn't always heal every wound, but it always keeps marching on. And three years later to the day, on December 1st, 1949, the anniversary of Paula Weldon's disappearance, the Bennington Triangle took its next victim. James E. Tedford was a 68-year-old World War I veteran who lived in a retirement home for veterans in Bennington. His much younger wife lived a few hours away in the small town of Franklin. Sometime in late November 1949, Tedford traveled to Franklin to visit his wife and her family. During the course of the visit, it was noted that his mental awareness was in decline, but that was common for men of his age. On the morning of December 1st, Tedford was driven to the bus station in St. Albans. From there, he traveled several hours back to Bennington and his retirement home. The bus took US-7 straight into the heart of the Bennington Triangle. When it arrived in Bennington that evening, all of the passengers got off, except one. When the bus driver went to clean the bus, he noticed Tedford's suitcase was still on the rack. An open bus schedule was sitting on the seat next to him, but there was no sign of the man himself. In the hours and days after, no one could figure out how a man could just have disappeared. The bus was reportedly only carrying 14 other passengers. Someone must have seen him not return after stopping. But everyone on board was adamant that Tedford always got back on the bus. It was a week before an official search was conducted. The retirement home assumed that he was still with his family. His family assumed the reverse. But James Tedford was never found, not even a body. Yet another unsolved disappearance was added to the Bennington Police Department files. 74, 18, 68. It appeared the woods of southern Vermont didn't discriminate by age. Less than a year later, Eight-year-old Paul Jepson bounced excitedly in the front seat of his mother, Margaret's, truck. They were heading toward the Bennington Town Dump. The Jepsons worked as its caretakers, keeping 65 pigs on the property. 
Notably, they had no relation to town psychic Clara Jepson, and she likely wouldn't have predicted what happened next. It was raining on October 12, 1950. But rain wouldn't feed hungry pigs. Perhaps because of the weather, Margaret told Paul to wait in the car while she began her daily caretaking chores. It would only take an hour or so. And sure enough, about an hour later, around 4 p.m., Margaret was done, but Paul hadn't waited for her. He'd probably gone to play in the junkyard puddles. Margaret looked around, but Paul wasn't in his normal spots. She shouted for him, but she only heard an echo. Sheriff John Maloney was contacted around 5 p.m. Authorities believed that maybe the eight-year-old had fallen down one of the embankments in the dump. Or maybe he had wandered off into the woods and got lost. But as night fell, there was still no sign of him. It wouldn't have been the first time that Paul Jepson ran away from home. In fact, only a couple weeks before, he had done just that. He was finally found in North Hoosick, New York, 10 miles away from Bennington. Still, Sheriff Maloney called in a bloodhound to try and track Paul's scent. As they waited for the dog to arrive, volunteers began searching in the dark. They sought any sign of his overalls, rain boots, or a little red sweater. They searched through rain, trash, pigs, rats, and fecal matter. It didn't matter. This disappearance was different. Paul Jepson was just a child. When the bloodhound named Little Queenie arrived, she quickly picked up a scent. She followed it all the way down the street until she reached the fork in the road. Then, suddenly, she stopped. Her handler, Sheriff Jennison, encouraged her to try again. But every time they did, it always ended at the same spot, right where the road split. The loss of the scent might have had something to do with the rain. Or it might have been the place where Paul had gotten into a car, willingly or by force. Coming up, supernatural theories begin to surface. Now back to the story. Between 1945 and 1950, four people mysteriously disappeared in the area now known as the Bennington Triangle. Mitty Rivers, Paula Weldon, James Tedford, and the latest, eight-year-old Paul Jepson. The initial search for the boy went well into the early hours of the morning. It began again at dawn. A call went out for volunteers to help. Neighbors and other children Paul's age were questioned for any information, but no one knew or saw anything. Two more days passed with no luck. The only sign of anything odd was a pair of men's gloves. They were found near the spot where little Queenie, the bloodhound, had lost Paul's trail. In one last effort, a Coast Guard helicopter searched a 50-mile radius around the dump, but found nothing. With that, mere days after Paul disappeared, the search was called off. No eight-year-old would survive the woods that long. If Paul was alive, he was with someone else. His mother feared he might have been hit by a car. Maybe the driver was scared and disposed of his body. Like other desperate families before them, the Jepsons called upon the help of a clairvoyant. This time, a woman named Aura Horton who lived in a nearby town. 
According to the Bennington Banner, Mrs. Horton voiced the opinion that the child would be found buried under a pile of leaves with brush over the top near the foot of the mountains. And again, authorities acted on this information. More searches were conducted, but again and again, they found nothing. Given the history of Glastonbury Mountain and the sheer number of disappearances, people started to suspect supernatural forces. On October 24th, Richard J. Lewis, a reporter from Albany, made the following observation. The Green Mountains, peaceful and beautiful from afar, yet treacherous and merciless when intruded upon, are believed to have swallowed another victim, a child who loved the rugged hills. And the mountains weren't done. Just two weeks after Paul Jepson vanished, 53-year-old Frida Langer arrived at Camp Boulder. It was near the Somerset Reservoir, only 25 miles from Bennington. Frida and her husband, Max, lived in Massachusetts, but they had owned the camp for over 10 years. On this particular visit, they were joined by Frida's cousin, Herbert Elsner. Camp Boulder was located outside Somerset, a town with only two year-round residents, the Leonards. They were the caretakers of the reservoir. Around 3 p.m. on Saturday, October 28th, Frida and her cousin Herbert decided to go for a walk and maybe hunt for some dinner. Frida's husband, Max, stayed behind. The sun wouldn't be up much longer, and he had poor eyesight and a bad knee. Not far from the camp, Frida accidentally slipped in a small stream and got her clothes wet. She told Herbert to wait while she quickly ran back to change her clothes. After waiting far longer than it should have taken, Herbert assumed that Frida was simply caught up in some business, possibly with Max. So he decided to carry on without her. But when Herbert returned around 5 p.m., Max was alarmed that Frida wasn't with him. The two men went out to look for her. After walking the shore road, shouting her name, they called the state police. Troopers from nearby, more populated towns converged on the area and began searching until dusk. In the dark, bonfires lined the road. Flashlights waved through the brush and the trees, but there was no sign of life. The next day, more troopers arrived. They formed a line and slowly combed the area looking for clues. Then the bloodhound Little Queenie was brought back to the woods, this time to look for Frida. Little Queenie traced Frida's scent from the stream she fell into back to camp, and each time they tried, the trail always ended at the camp. Authorities hypothesized that Frida may have become disoriented and maybe wandered the wrong direction into the woods, but she knew the area. She knew what to do if she got lost she would have almost certainly fired a gun to alert them of her location. But the woods were eerily quiet. The state's attorney, Edward John, now had the entire nation watching. In his own words, if the case wasn't solved, it would be a disgrace. In an effort to prevent another failure, 200 members of the National Guard were sent to look for Frida on November 11th and 12th. For two weeks, search parties scoured a 10-mile radius around the campsite. The only thing found was a single dollar bill. Five people had gone missing in five years, all around the same time of year. 
They were all of different backgrounds and different ages, but it was always fall, and it was always in the shadows of Glastonbury Mountain. Four out of the five were wearing the color red, but there was little else to link them. Naturally, there was a lot of speculation. Some began likening the region to the Bermuda Triangle. People could just up and vanish. Others have tried to connect the cases to old Native American legends and myths about Glastonbury Mountain, like the man-eating rock or the wild man that lived in the woods. Maybe the reason no bodies were found was because they were eaten, bones and all. Still others insist that it was the work of man, one or more bloodthirsty killers. After all, serial killers have been known to follow patterns. Maybe this one had a fascination with fall and the color red. Or maybe it was just five people that didn't want to be found. Five people who wanted a chance at a new life, who hopped on the long trail and walked until they hit Canada. Whatever the case, Glastonbury Mountain doesn't seem to want to let go of its secrets anytime soon. But maybe, just maybe, in our next episode, we'll be able to move one step closer to solving the mystery of the Bennington Triangle. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday with part two of the Bennington Triangle. For more information on Paula Weldon amongst the many sources we used, we found Clueless in New England, the unsolved disappearance of Paula Weldon, Connie Smith, and Catherine Hull by Michael C. Dooling, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Teresa Watson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.